I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Brad Buchanan, author of Shimmera. Few people have survived the nightmare of a stem cell transplant gone sideways. Fewer still have had the audacity to write about the miraculous yet bewildering experience of becoming a genetic shimmera. Brad Buchanan breaks this taboo and offers readers eloquent, surrealistic, and profoundly moving passages about his dramatic transformation and amazing recovery. His fourth book of poems tells in lyrically oblique confessions and hallucinatory vignettes the difficult but nevertheless wonderful history and aftermath of the author's 2016 stem cell transplant. The book explores the problems of survival guilt, chemistry, chemical dependency, and unprocessed or displaced trauma, while tracing an ultimately positive narrative of recovery and acceptance. Uh, He holds a PhD from Stanford University and taught British and post-colonial literature, as well as creative writing at Sacramento State University, until his retirement in 2016. Uh, Brad's poetry, fiction, and scholarly articles have appeared in nearly 200 journals. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Brad. Oh, thank you very much, Catherine, for having me. Well, we're going to have to. St- we're going to start with the title of the book. I think, obviously, Shimmera. Most people, many people, do not know what that means. What is a genetic Shimmera? Well, it's somebody who has had their DNA altered by a stem cell transplant. Uh, so in my case, my brother uh, was my donor. Um, he donated millions of his stem cells, which were uh, grafted into my body in 2016 because I had a, a life-threatening um, type of blood cancer that uh, would have killed me within a few months uh, had had it gone um, untreated. Uh, and they couldn't treat it for very long. It kept coming back stronger, so they had to take this uh, extraordinary measure um, which was, uh, yeah, which was successful uh, in fending off my original cancer, but a lot of chimeras um, like me end up getting a chronic illness uh, called graft-versus-host disease. Um, I had an acute case of that that also nearly killed me um, right off the bat in my, uh, in my transplant uh, uh, room. So, All right, so we're talking, I'm pronouncing so yeah. it wrong. Chimera is what you say, not chimera. Chimera. Well, I would pronounce it chimera, but, okay. it, you know, it's one of those uh, obscure words that uh, you can pronounce, I think, differently. But anyway. All right, I'll pronounce the way you pronounced it. But so are we talking about now because you had a stem cell transplant, bone marrow from your brother, that means that the two, that you have the same DNA as your brother? Is that what, is that what you're saying? Well, Let's say that he was a close enough genetic match that they felt um, that the transplant would not prove fatal. They did, I think they tested for 10 different genetic markers, and all 10 matched uh, me. So they figured, um, yeah, I was unlikely to get uh, a galloping case of graft versus host disease. Unfortunately, they were slightly mistaken. Um, but in theory, a younger male sibling is the ideal stem cell donor, and they do try to um, come up with as close a genetic match as they can um, to minimize the chances of a catastrophic uh, graft versus host reaction. Um, however, if someone has the identical DNA to you, 
the transplant isn't going to uh, fend off the original cancer as effectively. There has to be some element of genetic mismatch between the two individuals because my immune system no longer recognized my cancer. Um, so if that makes any sense, uh, it, it just shows what a fine line that doctors are trying to walk uh, in a stem cell transplant where they want someone who is genetically similar but not genetically identical. So if you were talking about identical twins, you're saying that wouldn't work? or? Uh, well, I, that I don't know exactly, um, but uh, I, w- I would think possibly not, yeah. Although it is possible, maybe I'll revise my statement, and I'll just say I simply don't know. Um, but, yeah, he was, he was close enough that they felt uh, they could go forward with it. And these days, honestly, they're doing what are called haplotransplants where people are not perfect uh, 10 out of 10 matches or even 12 out of 12 matches um, because they've got such good ways of managing graft-versus-host disease in most cases. I was just very unlucky to be as sick as I was as quickly as I was after my transplant. So your book and your book of poetry is all about your journey. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll call it a journey from... Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like anything that could happen happened, and I'm not talking about the good stuff. (laughs) I mean... Yeah. Yeah, and so, but you've come, you've been through it. You, this happened, the transplant was in what, 2016. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So where are you right well, now? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm considered to be cured of my original cancer, um, but uh, I still have a chronic illness, uh, chronic graft-versus-host disease, um, which is more manageable, certainly, than acute graft-versus-host disease. I also, in the meantime, had... A second type of blood cancer, um, a B-cell lymphoma, that was brought on by the Epstein-Barr virus, which is a virus most of us have in our bodies, but it is just dying dormant, not doing any harm. But because I was so immune compromised after my transplant, uh, the virus kind of uh, sprang to life and and produced a second type of life-threatening blood cancer that had to be treated at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York with uh, an experimental um, uh, CAR T-cell therapy that is now more widely available. But uh, it was basically a, a third terminal diagnosis that, that my family had to, had to cope with until we realized, oh, our doctor actually uh, told us that, you know, two weeks after he said that I had a week to live, he said, well, actually... There's this new therapy in New York. How quickly can you get there? Turns out we could get there pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, I've dodged quite a, few, uh, quite a few bullets, you could say. And I like the metaphor of the journey because I, I no longer consider myself uh, a cancer warrior. Uh, when an illness is encoded into your own DNA, it's hard to kick its butt, you know. It's hard to beat that illness, uh, which isn't the case with me and my, my graft versus host disease. Um, You know, I'm glad you mentioned the word warrior because I've I've always had difficulty with that. And I've, I've, you know, I obviously know a lot of people, family, friends who have cancer, have gone through this journey. um, And the word warrior and fighting and that kind of like Mm -hmm. uh, warlike response to the cancer seems 
kind of debilitating, I guess, emotionally or mentally. It's it, there's other yeah. ways to describe it. So, um, talk, you know, tell us about that in reference to you and your yeah. journey. Yeah. Well, that's such a great point, and um, I mean, the first thing to to recognize is how um, ever present and you know universal that that military violent language is in the American discourse on cancer treatment and survivorship, right? You have to fight your cancer. If you die, you've lost your battle with cancer. Uh, we have to stand up to cancer as if it's some kind of bully who could be defeated just by being brave enough and defiant enough, uh, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, on a personal level, like my mother died of complications of B-cell lymphoma um, last year. And it's not because she was cowardly or failed to stand up to cancer. Um, she was every bit as much of a fighter as I was. She just didn't make it um, for various reasons. And um, honestly, I, I do think that in the moment, that warrior mentality helps to conquer the fears. Uh, for instance, I was extraordinarily squeamish, um, Catherine. And every time they proposed a new treatment to me, I was like, oh, my God, that sounds horrendous. I, I don't want to even know the details. Just uh, let me sign on the dotted line and spare me all this information. But I did have to go in with a kind of warrior mentality. Um, and I, I'm very honest about that in my previous book called The Scars Aligned, a Cancer Narrative, uh, where I draw upon war poetry uh, uh, and write uh, poems about my own fight just to, like, stand up and literally stand, stand up while well, they treated my body with, uh, you know, massive doses of radiation preparatory to my transplant. They basically had to give me total body radiation to get rid of all the cancer they possibly could. And that involved a tremendous physical challenge, just standing there for hours uh, twice a day um, to receive these uh, blasts of radiation. I mean, those are violent treatments, and the, the warrior mentality is maybe necessary uh, to go into those treatments and to face the fears and and accept the violence that's being done to you. Um, however, after it's all over with, that warrior mentality gives way, and as it has done in my case, to a lot of survivor guilt. Um, you know, why did I survive? Uh, people tell me it was a miracle that I survived. Okay, well, that also is kind of a heavy responsibility to lay on someone. People say things like, well, there must be a purpose. You must have a reason for surviving. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but I'm darned if I know what that is. Uh, so now that I have a chronic illness that isn't, you know, immediately life-threatening, I've had to alter my um, metaphorical uh, language where I talk about a journey. I talk about, um, you know, I think of my survivorship not as, the survivorship of a, of a warrior coming home from the battle, but as I'm, an, I'm a formerly uh, an educator, as I think you mentioned in your bio. So I think of survivorship as like just showing up to school, you know. Um, in fact, one of the poems in the book is called Survival, oh, sorry, Survivor, and it starts, um, still available when they call roll in the schoolroom, where I am one more remedial student a slower learner of the usual platitudes, sitting up straight and keeping my bathroom breaks short but present. 
and that's you know to me that that's a better way uh for me to think of myself as a survivor as somebody who's still you know who can still go back and and learn more and uh, and become a student again of my my new life after I've had to retire um due to my ongoing disability uh from my chosen profession so how do you keep up your emotional stability? I, the, the warrior thing and fighting the battle seems exhausting to me. I mean, you're already exhausted. You've already been bombarded yeah. with, yeah, with all of the, the, not just the, well, the treatment itself. Um, so how, how do you, maybe that's two questions, but how do you keep your mental state in a calmer, maybe more, which would, I would seem to me be more healing, not getting depressed, not, yeah. uh, you know, because as you say, this is what you have is a chronic condition. Um, it's not something that's gone away and you, yeah. so yeah, that's the question. How, how do you keep up your, well, I, I don't keep my mental state, um, you know, in, in one like calm, I, I cry almost every day, um, Catherine. I I read a lot of poetry. I write a lot of poetry. I express my feelings. Uh, I've also written a medical memoir called uh, Living with Graft versus Host Disease, How I Stopped Fighting Cancer and Started Healing. Um, that came out in 2021. And in that book, I confess, I cry every day. I regard crying in the, the way that the yogic uh, tradition from Southeast Asia does that crying is a spiritual activity, like laughing, in fact. Um, and through things like laughter and crying, we're tapping into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is where healing and loving happens. Um, when we're stuck in the warrior mentality, we are in the fight or flight or <laughs> freeze mode. That's the sympathetic nervous system. And that does get exhausted very quickly and gives out you know, over the long term. Uh, and so we have, you know, post-traumatic stress that we have to reprocess. And so I take an antidepressant. I see a therapist. I write a lot of poetry about my experiences. I'm still processing what happened to me and trying to understand, you know, what, what was the reason that I didn't die? And I will confess to you and to your listeners that uh, there were times in the transplant unit when I didn't know whether I was alive or dead and honestly didn't care. And if I could have reached a button to end that awful nightmare, I probably would have pressed it at some point. I started ripping tubes out of my IV uh, tower one day because I couldn't find the button to summon the nurse. I was blind, actually, which is another aspect of uh, my acute graft versus host disease that we haven't talked about. But... Um, you know, I've really been uh, through the mill, and I have a lot of trauma to reprocess, um, and I'm well aware of it, but fortunately, poetry is the best way to express and kind of reframe all of those experiences and to feel the emotions that come from um, trying to process those experiences. So, Brad, given your that. experience, and you are a poet, you're a writer, you're an author, what would you say to people who are going through say what you're going through or similar kinds of situations who aren't, don't have that, those capabilities who are not talented like you are, who can't write poetry. Um, how can, 
And, well, and you, yeah. yeah. Well, honestly, talent has nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I run writing workshops uh, through the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center, um, where we encourage people of all literary you know, backgrounds, including those who've never written a line in their lives, to to write, to to journal, to put something down on paper to express where they're at in this moment. I believe very strongly in the power of writing to heal, um, to accept what's happening. And this is stuff like, you know, 90% of the things I write, Catherine, are, are not publishable. They're just for me. They're just like, uh, today I feel crappy because X, or, you know, I'm scared because Y. And those things aren't literary. They're not. Um, they're not aimed at anybody else. They're just for for my own uh, p- purposes to to keep myself centered and uh, to remind myself, you know, that um, that I do have this coping mechanism that's available to anybody. Um, not and our our workshop is not just for cancer patients either. We get a lot of staff members who are burned out. We get caregivers who are burned out. So honestly, I think anybody. Can benefit from this uh, this um, this writing practice uh, that I could, that I would like to uh, encourage um, everybody uh, who's going through anything difficult, and that probably covers most of the human race. Honestly, face your fears. <laughs> I as I'm listening down. to you, I'm thinking like face your fears with with writing. Write it down. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just and write it down. Exactly. Accept and, it. Make it real. And and yeah, someone asked. Uh, there's a famous. Um, a writing teacher named William Stafford, who's kind of legendary, at least uh, on the West Coast, who uh, was asked, well, William, how, do you, how did you manage to write every day? And he said, well, I simply lowered my standards. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> yeah. he didn't expect himself to write well. He just got something out on the page. Um, I'll use a euphemism uh, and say that crappy first drafts are what every author, no matter how ambitious, has to start with just get the truth out as best you can tell your story you know as best you can um without censoring yourself without trying to edit yourself without trying to sound you know smarter than you are or in my case more like you know uh more well informed um because i had so much information to process as a new cancer patient uh because the the language of cancer and cancer treatments and even cancer drugs is terrifying. The things they're going to put in your body sound like, you know, pesticides or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the things you drop on your enemies to, to kill them. Uh, vincristine, etoposide, uh, you know, those were cancer drugs that went into my body. And I did not like the sound of them one tiny bit. Yeah, writing, it sounds as say, you're describing it. It does. It sounds horrific. That's the only word that comes <laughs> yeah. to mind. Like you say, a chemical yeah. factory being injected into your body. But I do have. I want to know. That's you. That's the you know, and your response and how you've responded, and which was what we've been talking about, obviously. But now you're married, and you have two daughters. Yeah. So what is the impact? Yeah. And they're gonna. I assume they don't have the same kind of response that you there you have. They're not the sick person, but they are the family of the sick person, what's been their response? How have they handled your illness? Well, um, when we first told them, they were six and 10 years old. So they were old enough to understand, you know, oh, this is serious. And we actually took them to some free art therapy classes that a local hospital was offering. 
that I do think helped them to, um, you know, express their love for me. You know, they made these little paper hearts and, uh, you know, some ceramic art as well. Like they just did crafts that, that, you know, that they could accomplish that, uh, helped them to, to be with other kids, first of all, who are experiencing something sim- similar. Um, and, and in fact, these days, uh, you know, I'm more or less back to normal with you, you know, as far as they're concerned, like I know darn well, I'm not what I used to be by any means, uh, physically, um, at all. Uh, but these days, um, they're, they still go to a, a summer camp to think that, uh, cancer, uh, kids whose, uh, whose families have been touched by cancer. It's called Camp Kesem, and it's, uh, it's a nationwide camp run through various uh, universities, um, and it's free. Um, anyone who's, who has a cancer, uh, cancer situation in their family can, uh, can uh, register and, uh, and in theory go to these camps. So there are lots of really strong resources for them. However, I will say that my you know, my older daughter does now write poetry precisely, I think, and maybe I'm flattering myself, but uh, what's a father to do? Um, she's writing poetry to process her own feelings uh, these days because she's seen how that's worked uh, worked for me. What about your wife? Those are the kids. Obviously, your spouse is going to have a different reaction. I'm making that assumption. Yeah. Well, she, in fact, wrote her own book, uh, Catherine Fukin believe how much writing was going on. Um, she has written a book called Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America um, because my medical situation was so prolonged, so dire, and so kind of tortuous. Uh, it was a roller coaster ride that lasted like five years or so. Um, and she experienced a lot of caregiver burnout and realized this is a subject that nobody was talking about that all the caregiving books and memoirs were people who found caregiving wonderfully fulfilling. Um, not everyone experiences it that way. And she realized that our medical system depends on a lot of unpaid caregiving from largely female uh, um, family members, uh, and often it falls disproportionately on women of color. So she wrote her version of this story, which, um, like my a medical memoir uh, originated in a blog that we kept together uh, as my medical nightmare was unfolding. And the blog is called The Aspiring Chimera. And so we we knew that we were tired of answering emails to individual friends and relatives asking, how's Brad doing? Um, so we put this blog together and we just updated it with every new development um, up through my stem cell transplant and then on to the clinical trial that uh, took me to New York and so on and so forth until finally we realized like, okay, there's so much that we need to, you know, there's so much, such a story to tell from both of our perspectives that we decided, look, uh, it's time to stop blogging and start writing our books. It's a family story. We only have a few minutes left. I could, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a family story. I think as you're describing it, um, there's a yeah, lot, you know, from a social worker, for, yeah, from a social worker perspective, I just want to kind of add this, that, uh, a lot of caregivers are very angry and, and not, and don't express that, but it, it gets, yeah. you know, it, it smolders, I guess is the word, uh, be, 
between them and the person they're caring for and the family. And, and those are big issues that, like you say, no one's talked about it. Your wife's yeah. book came out in 2021. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's important to yeah, the resentment. And, and her, yeah, her book, yeah, her book really did kind of make a, a significant contribution to the discourse. Like she had uh, articles in the New York Times, op-eds in the New York Times, in Time Magazine. So it it kind of uh, moved the needle a little bit on the discourse of caregiving, which you know, according to the Biden administration, is one of their priorities. Um, to try to recognize this. So it was definitely a very timely and important book. Um, from my point of view, of course, my book is very timely and important also because there'd never been a uh, a book about graft versus host disease from a patient's perspective. So I decided, well, that has to exist and I might as well be the one to write it. But I would say hers is probably a better book than mine, <laughs> if I'm truly honest. Well, you've been, uh, you know, it's good because you've been promoting her book as well, which I think is really a good thing, both of you. Yeah, you are a writing family. There's no question about that. And I'm still going to say talented, even though you corrected me on that one. But, okay, two minutes left. So give us a website and or websites to go to um, to get more information about your book, about her book, too, and maybe even your daughter's. She's writing. <laughs> well, I I don't know if my daughter is maintaining uh, her website but for a while, I think it was twogirlsforfeminism.com or something like that. But um, my website is simply uh, bradthechimera.com. Uh, that has information about my various writing projects. Um, uh, my wife, Kate Washington's book, is widely available. It's on the big uh, book-selling conglomerate that's turned out to be the thing that sells us everything. starts with an A, ends with an N. But it was published by Beacon Press, so you can probably get it from the press. My book, too, is available uh, through Jeff Bezos' company's website. Uh, and the publisher uh, of Chimera is Finishing Line Press, so you can order that book through them. And my medical memoir uh, is published by Armin Lear Press. So, uh, and all these books are available uh, yeah, pretty much online. Yeah, and bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Um, Brad Buchanan, author of Chimera. It's been, it's been my pleasure, uh, Catherine. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 